millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Warning. This podcast contains discussions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to another episode of Something Wicked, a bonus series from the Three Ravens podcast all about historical monsters, maniacs and murderers from across the world of folklore. My name's Martin Vaux, I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts... Eleanor Conlon. Hello, and we hope you enjoyed our recent Christmas special. Mm-hmm. Though, enough with the chintz and jollity. <laughs> Let's hear about something from the dark side of the season. Yes, indeed. So today we are talking about Hans Trapp, a Christmas character famous in continental Europe who's less known in England, but like many of our subjects on Something Wicked, he has a rather grisly reputation. I admit, I've never heard of Hans Trapp. So you say grisly reputation just how grisly. Well, we know that he murdered a heck of a lot of people both in and outside of war, but he was said to be a cannibal, a child killer, a devil worshipper, and it said his ghost still haunts Alsace-Lorraine to this day. Very well. So, in short, he's a baddie. Indeed, he is. (laughs) Now, I know Alsace-Lorraine as a place on the border between Germany and France, Mm. famously fought over again and again from the Franco-Prussian War to World War I, then it was captured by Hitler. It's a place that's been disputed a great deal over time. Exactly right. It's now part of France and is also the place where Alsatian dogs originally came Aww. from. But back when it first became Hans Trapp's stomping ground, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, OK. So we're talking quite a long time ago. Mm. When specifically was Hans Trapp alive and making trouble in Alsace-Lorraine? Well, we're talking 15th century, specifically from about 1450 through until 1503, with our story starting in Saxony. And if you're German geography isn't great. Saxony is and was located in West Germany, with the historic region of Old Saxony being the place from which the Anglo-Saxons invaded Britain. My German geography isn't great, and you'll have to excuse me here, but what's the world actually like in Saxony during the 15th century? And in England, we're, what, smack bang in the middle of the Hundred Years' War. Mm. We've got the Welsh uprisings of Owen Glendower. Yeah, we're talking Henry IV and Joan of Navarre at the start Mm -hmm. of the century. You wrote about that, of course, in your story, The Queen of Bones, in our Kent episode. Then Henry V, Henry VI, Edwards IV and V, the Wars of the Roses, Richard III, and the eventual succession of Henry VII. Yeah, so in English history, this period is jam-packed with war, particularly mounted conflict and disputes between local regions and feuding families very much a time of upheaval and kind of the era where power in England is a bit up in the air or before things settled down a bit under the Tudors. Yeah, quite right. And so what's the picture in Germany? Because 
life in Germany didn't settle down for even longer than life in England, did it? No, indeed. So as mentioned, during this period, Saxony is part of the Holy Roman Empire, with Saxony being a region kind of in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire. The Saxon electorate, as it was called, was very much on the rise, jostling and growing in power, with the Holy Roman Empire struggling to maintain its control of many of its barons and lords. As a result, Saxony specifically experienced a lot of chopping and changing, with different families and factions appointed rulers of different parts, not all of whom saw eye to eye. Well, bearing all that in mind, I suppose life across the Channel doesn't sound that different. Mm. And was war much the same with clashing cavalry and longbows, armoured knights on horseback and all the rest? It was, and into this context, around 1450, arrives Hans von Trotha, the fourth son of the powerful von Trotha family. Now, the von Trothas worked closely with the archbishops of Magdeburg, and although the title sounds quite grand, the archbishops of Magdeburg were fading in power and influence during the 15th century, all before they were ultimately ousted during the 16th century as part of the Protestant Reformation. Blimey, this does sound Sound an awful lot like English history, yeah, does, what with yeah. Henry VIII also engaging in a Protestant Reformation, also during the 16th century. Yeah, you're bang on. So imagine Hans von Trotha, the fourth son of a once powerful family, is born into a state whose power is very much up and down with political allegiances that are looking a little bit shaky. It's not an ideal scenario. No, I suppose not. I mean, typically in feudal societies, the firstborn son would hold the land and titles, mm-hmm. the second might become a courtier or perhaps a priest, and then beyond that, the ex- expectation would normally be for the third and fourth sons to enter the military. And that's precisely what young Hans von Trotha did, which suited him because he was six foot five inches tall. Wow, okay, so Hans was a big boy. He was a very big boy, said to have a raven black beard and eyes and to be absolutely merciless. When he was in his late teens, he entered the service of the electors and counts Palatine of the Rhine in Heidelberg, and there he proved himself on the battlefield. In fact, he was such a successful knight that he earned two minor fiefdoms, so castles basically, with some land attached. These were Berwartstein and Grafendan, and one of these, Grafendan, was basically falling into ruin already, so he kind of just ignored it. Berwartstein, meanwhile, was all the way over in West Germany, so on the Rhine and border with France, at what is now Alsace-Lorraine. And he modernised it, turning it into a kind of impenetrable fortress and power base. So thus far, it seems like Hans is a pretty effective minor lord, mm. because as discussed in our Lords of Leaping Advent episode, if you were a knight who managed to hold your land by force and consolidate power, it normally meant those in power higher up the food chain had to take you seriously. Yeah, and credit to him, Hans wasn't mucking about. He fashioned Berwartstein into a kind of impenetrable death trap, incredibly defensive, with specially designed killing zones for would-be invaders. All this meant that attacking his fortress would be a nightmare. Clever Hans. Mm, Clever and evil. Because in addition to rumours beginning to swirl about Hans and his sudden rise to power, he also proved to be quite greedy, just sort of claiming one day the ownership of Weissenberg Abbey. (laughs) Well, so what, he just wrote the abbot a letter. Dear abbot, I like your abbey very much and have duly concluded it's mine now. Find us keepers. Well, more or less. And Weissenberg Abbey had once been one of the wealthiest and culturally most significant abbeys in all of Germany. But because the abbot didn't surrender to him and hand over the abbey's wealth, Hans built a massive dam upstream, meaning the abbey and the town of Weissenberg 
Heisenberg was suddenly starved of water. Oh, man, what a jerk. Oh, yeah, total jerk. But that was only the beginning, because then the abbot wrote to him, as well as to other lords in the nearby regions, demanding the dam be removed. So Hans basically said, sure, buddy, your funeral, and destroyed the dam, flooding the abbey and the town of Weissenberg, ruining them both. What? He just flooded a whole town? He did, completely wrecking it and destroying the local economy, killing at least 150 people. That is horrific. <laughs> it is. And in response, the electoral palatinate decided to side against the abbot with Hans, promoting him to the rank of marshal, basically saying, there you go, Hans. Help yourself. Blimey. Well, credit where credit's due. It's brutal and horrible, but these were brutal and horrible times. Mm. He decided he wanted that abbey, and from the sounds of it, he got what he wanted, even if he did it in a truly horrendous manner. Alas for Hans, though, the Pope really didn't like what he'd done, which is fair enough in my view. So Pope Innocent VIII, then his successor Alexander VI, summoned Hans to the papal court in Rome to answer for his crimes, but... Guess what Hans did in response to that? I imagine he did not go. He did not. Instead, he sent a letter to Alexander VI saying, (laughs) basically, look, you're a Borgia and we all know how immoral you and your family are. So give it a rest, old chummy chum chum. Let bygones be bygones and leave me alone. Wow, he's got a brass neck, this Hans von (laughs) Trofer. He does. And so the Pope excommunicates him. And in response to that, the Elector Palatinate renounces Hans' titles. And the king, later Emperor Maximilian I, issues an imperial ban on Hans, (laughs) saying it was illegal for him to remain in the Holy Roman Empire. And they say cancel culture's new. (laughs) (laughs) But guess what Hans did in response to that? He didn't go, did he? He did not! Well, at least he's consistent. And because his castle was, as mentioned utterly unassailable, (laughs) there was genuinely very little anyone could do. So rather than attacking him and suffering heavy losses, the Holy Roman Empire just kind of had to let him carry on doing what he was doing. Which was what? Well, exactly. Because from this mysterious power base, without a wife or children, surrounded by loyal soldiers and with deep pockets and tons of gold from his farms, it was generally accepted that Hans' power had to be down to more than just cunning. I mean, there's no doubt that he was a clever man, if evil. But evil and clever made for a solid combination, considering the times in which he lived. For sure. And then things became more complex for the Holy Roman Empire during the 1490s because of the Italian Wars. This is something I know about because I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to the Italian Renaissance, the Borgias and the Medicis. Mm. Uh, Plus, a couple of years ago, you and I both went a bit mad for Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. And this is, of course, around the time when da Vinci was designing war machines to help in these very wars. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So da Vinci was working for his patron, Lodovico Sforza, and between banging out the Virgin of the Rocks and the Last Supper and moonlighting for Matthias Corvinus, the Raven King of Hungary, painting the Madonna for him on weekends, he eventually flees to Venice and ends up designing the war machines you mentioned. And during this period, Charles VIII of France invades Italy, going to war with Ludovica Sforza and the crumbling Italic League. It's such an interesting period because during this time you have, for example, Niccolò Machiavelli active in politics. That's the same Machiavelli who wrote The Prince. Yeah, precisely. And The Prince was one of the three texts every European nobleman was expected to have read and to keep on their 
nightstand during their renaissance. The other two were the Bible, of course, and Castiglione's The Book of the Courtier, which, like The Prince, I would highly recommend. It's awesome. The thing is, though, from what you've said, you can see in something like The Prince, which uh, Machiavelli was inspired to write by the doings of Cesare Borgia, among others. And it's got this focus on backstabbing and power maintained on the basis of mutually assured destruction and so on. These are the kind of tactics that Hans von Trotha was using in the Holy Roman Empire. So they were bang on trend. Yeah, definitely. These were very much brutal times, with the rule of law being pretty far off as a concept, in all honesty. I mean, the general rule was, if you wanted to do something, you did it, and it was up to your opponents to stop you by whatever means necessary. And I think I'm right in saying that the Italian wars kind of drew in all of Europe, Mm. including Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, with war against the Ottoman Empire also threatening to break out at any moment. So it's all incredibly fractious. Exactly right. And to put it very, very simply, on one side of the conflict, you had the House of Valois, the French, and on the other, you had the Habsburgs, who held power in what is now Germany, as well as Spain, Hungary, Croatia, Portugal. They really were quite the dynasty. And in the middle of all this, quite literally, is Hans. And if your Hans and your Habsburg overlords have given you an imperial ban and excommunicated you and so on, who are you going to cosy up with? He didn't. Surely. He blimmin' well did. He hopped over the border, travelled to the French court as a quote-unquote diplomat, where Charles's heir, Louis XII, of course, welcomed him as a known enemy of the Habsburgs. Wow. And Louis XII even knighted him as a chevalier d'or, literally a golden knight. What? I, I can't even with this guy. He's suddenly a French knight in addition to being an abbey-flooding thorn in the side of the Holy Roman Empire. Yep. And does he pay any price for all of this bad behaviour? He does not. At all. After being honoured at the French court, he (laughs) travels back to his fortress at Berwitzstein, living in wealth, luxury and comfort, eventually dying of natural causes. Although the legends say he was struck by lightning. But yeah, there's no evidence of that having happened. Kind of beggar's belief, really, because kings in this era really hated rebels Mm. and normally made quite the effort to hunt them down and kill them when their authority was threatened. Yeah, they normally did just that. But in this case, the Habsburgs had bigger fish to fry, what with war having broken out along two of their major borders, which meant that Hans had kind of outfoxed them. And all this contributed to the sense that not only was Hans a kind of local dictator and legendary villain in his own time, but his reputation for being thoroughly evil only grew and metastasized over time, elevating him to the status of a supernatural villain and one who continues to terrorise Alsace Lorraine to this day. So, hold on, is there a genuine supernatural angle to all this? Oh, there sure is. Plus, cannibalism, child sacrifice, moral depravity and corruption. It's all rather juicy. But more on all that right after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Okay, Martin, you've promised me supernatural goings on. Yep. Tell me, how is Hans von Trofer in any way supernatural? Well, because I can see that he is a bit of a wrong'un and a rebel, but from everything you've told me, he's just a very effective minor lord who was dealt a weak hand but played it very, very well. Well, likely because he was such a baddie in his lifetime, Hans von Trotter soon became a kind of folkloric bogeyman across the region he ruled and its surroundings. And we have to take everything I'm about to go through with a pinch of salt, but still, it's pretty darn interesting. And we should probably start with Hans von Trotter's association with St. Nicholas. What? The same St. Nicholas who hangs out with Krampus and Black Peter? Yeah. He of St. Nicholas's Day giving out gifts to children. Yeah, that exact St. Nicholas. Because a bit like Krampus and Black Peter, around Alsace and Lorraine, the bogeyman who haunts the woods around Christmas each year and the shadowy figure who accompanies Santa punishing naughty children is none other than the devilish figure of Hans von Trotter, known today as Hans Trapp. What? So this 15th century robber baron is a Christmas villain? He is. People dress in costumes and so on, but his costume has changed. For example, he started out being known as the Black Knight, and there are quite a few intriguing stories linked to him, and even particular places where he was supposed to get up to evil deeds. Yeah. Well, one of these, and perhaps the most innocent, pertains to the legend of a Jungfernsprung, or Maiden's Leap. In this story, we have a young maiden out one day in the forest of Darn, gathering berries, and there she is in the deep, dark forest with her basket far from home, when all of a sudden a man bursts out of a thicket dressed in black armour. It's none other than... Hans Trapp! Flee, maiden, flee! Save yourself! Naturally, the maiden is terrified, knowing Hans Trapp's reputation for evil and debauchery, and duly Hans begins to chase after her, looking to have his wicked way. So the young maiden gathers up her skirts and runs, dashing through the forest. Hans, of course, gives chase, and in her panic, the maiden doesn't look where she's going, and suddenly finds herself at the edge of a sheer cliff. Oh, she's in trouble now. Hans is going to get her. Well, the maiden decides that death is a better fate than encountering Hans' trap, so she throws herself off the precipice. Yet, a miracle then occurs, for as she's falling, her skirts open up into a parachute, and she floats down into the valley below landing safely. Oh, quite the lucky break. Most definitely. Plus, in addition to surviving the leap entirely unhurt, where she lands, a spring miraculously rises from the deep within the earth, and that spring has continued to flow ever since. You know, this is a pretty cute story. Yeah. I like the idea of the maiden with her magic skirts enabling her to float down to safety, and I can kind of see that Hans Trapp is the villain of the tale, but... His real-life flooding of a whole town and abbey is a genuinely horrific thing to have done. Well, this story is... Well, I mean, it's almost adorable. Well, I'll grant you, it is quite a sweet story. So let's crank up the dial a notch and talk about Hans Trapp's next and nasty trick, which is all about abducting children. Granted, this sounds less pleasant. Please, good sir, continue. OK, well, if you remember, Hans famously holed himself up in his impenetrable fortress at Bervetstein, and during his time there, it was widely reputed that his military prowess, sudden wealth and undeniable cunning came from a diabolical source. Did he do a deal with the devil? Is that the legend? It is indeed. It's said that in return for luck, power and gold, Hans sold his soul. Furthermore, it's said that the excommunication he received came really as a 
consequence of his use of demons to secure his dominion. Ah, with you. So his salty letter to the Pope wasn't enough to get him excommunicated. No, no. Instead, he needed to be allied with the princes of hell. Exactly that. <laughs> Furthermore, it's said that as part of his deal, Hans promised Satan regular deliveries of innocent human hearts. Well, naturally, Satan loves a human heart. I mean, who doesn't? They're delicious. And Hans was said to have set upon an ingenious way of snatching up the hearts he needed, sending demons out into the woods to abduct children who were then dragged back to his castle and butchered. Nasty. Yet, while these hearts were delivered up to the Dark Lord, what's Hans going to do about the rest of that tender, juicy child flesh. You can't let it go to waste, can he? His hands turning into a cannibal now? He is, so the legends go. In his lifetime, Hans von Trotha became a cannibal, developing a particular taste for the flesh of children. Well, in all seriousness, that's pretty gross. But the next question that needs to be asked is, do we have any evidence at all that Hans really did abduct and eat people? None whatsoever. But off the back of these stories, we end up with the last and perhaps strangest part of Hans Trapp's legacy. Because it's said that Hans never died and that his deal with the devil means he kind of lives on in a half-life. No longer can he command demons and long ago his armour rusted away, yet he still owes the devil a regular supply of innocent hearts. I mean, what's a guy to do? Yeah, he's got himself into a bit of a bind, hasn't he? Well, never forget, Hans was ever a cunning character. So, every year, when the nights start drawing in to shroud Hans in darkness, he heads out, dressed as a scarecrow. I actually don't like that idea. It's genuinely a little bit creepy. (laughs) Yep, and so Hans waits, dressed as a scarecrow, sometimes in the woods, often appearing in family fields and nearby homesteads, normally from Halloween onwards. And from his position as a scarecrow, he watches the children in the homes nearby, deciding which ones to steal away and eat, and whose hearts should go to the devil in payment. Oh, okay, I kind of love this, because the scarecrow is one of those fairly universal fears, isn't it? Yeah, Jung writes about it in his work on the collective unconscious, because Jung says the scarecrow is a universal fear. Every culture in the world uses as scarecrows, with Jung arguing that we fear them for a few reasons. He calls them shadow entities because they look like people and fulfil a purpose human beings should fulfil, but they are, of course, inanimate, so subject to a kind of forced labour which makes us see them as pathetic or wretched. Plus, he also writes about them being particularly potent in Christian cultures because they appear to be crucified with their arms out, so they serve as kind of a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. They're like replacement icons dark sacrifices made by agrarian communities. And with that in mind, they not only make us feel guilty about our own failings, but also, as they stand outside in all weathers, doing our bidding, we also fear how they might behave if they had the agency to move and speak and take revenge. Deeply sinister. Mm, So this would suggest that every time a child in Alsace-Lorraine sees a scarecrow, they're going to watch it to see if it moves because, (laughs) well, who knows, it might be Hans Trapp. Yep, precisely. And then add into the mix that people in Alsace-Lorraine, traditionally dressed as decomposing scarecrows on St Nicholas's Day, accompanying Santa Claus to nearby houses, you can see how that might scare the living daylights out of the average 
average child. I definitely can. <laughs> to be honest, the idea of someone dressed as a decomposing scarecrow pitching up at my front door in a winter's night would be enough to freak me out. Yep. My goodness. People in recent European history really did like scaring children, didn't they? They absolutely did. And meanwhile, it's worth saying that all the evidence about the use of fear to change a child's behaviour has proven to be massively counterproductive. For example, programmes like Scared Straight. Have you heard of that one? It's an American thing, isn't it? It is. It's a programme where young offenders are taken into prisons, for example, and locked up to see what it feels like, shouted at by prison guards and terrorised by inmates. Similar things happen with army drill sergeants and so on, but studies into Scared Straight and comparable interventions have been shown quite clearly to increase the chances young offenders and delinquents will enter the world of crime rather than the opposite. So interesting. What do we know about the psychology of that? Well, the basic idea is very often children and young people who are behaving badly are doing so because they have needs that aren't being met. Sometimes these are mental health needs, sometimes they are socio-economical needs, but whatever it may be, things like scared straight only serve to acclimatise young people to prison conditions, for one, making them think, hey, this isn't so bad, but it also reinforces internal messages like, I deserve to be treated badly, or I am a bad person and scaring me is justified, creating a kind of internal permission structure for those people where they kind of just lose hope, basically. Which makes perfect sense. Mm. And I've got to say, as per our discussion of Krampus and Black Peter... I really don't think it's a good idea to traumatise children, (laughs) whether that be at Christmas or any time of the year. We are absolutely agreed on that one. But what do you think about Hans Trapp or Hans von Trotha more widely? Well, he obviously did do some terrible things, not least killing all those people by flooding their town. Mm. That's pretty reprehensible. He also seems very much a product of his time. After all, he was rewarded for being brutal and cunning, so why would he behave any differently? Yeah, exactly. I think it's very interesting that he's grown from being a real-life robber baron to becoming a supernatural entity, but there's no evidence that he was devilish, even if it does make for a good story. It's brilliant. I'd love to see a film about the real Hans von Trotha. It actually reminds me quite a lot of the Something Wicked episode we did about Elizabeth Bathory, the blood countess. That's interesting. Well, because it seems like she was probably a product of her time with her reputation developing as a result of her enemies wanting to discredit her Mm. and by virtue of the fact she was a powerful woman in a time when it wasn't really acceptable to be a powerful woman. I mean there are similarities for sure and if we take gender off the table what I'm left thinking is Hans von Trotha was a fourth son he was Mm. not meant to become powerful the fact that he did even if his methods were barbaric made him a target for ire within the society of his time. Although I do kind of wish we had a bit more real evidence about him being genuinely creepy and devilish. Some of the details about Elizabeth Bathory are a bit more sensational than old hands. Yeah, very true. Well, thank you, Martin. That was extremely interesting. And I shall keep an extra special eye out for scarecrows in the local area. Yeah, if if in doubt, go stab them with a pitchfork. As ever, if you would like extra content, please consider signing up for our Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. Our Patreon exclusive film club episode about Kwai Dan went up today. Yes. And we'll have our Three Ravens newsletter for January coming out on New Year's Day. And we'll be back on Monday. 
Monday with a regular Three Ravens episode, now that all this Christmas madness is over. Yes, yes. And where will we be visiting? Well, I'm going to be talking about the history and folklore of Leicestershire and telling the tale of Black Annis. Well, I'm very much looking forward to that after that wonderful poem uh, our listener Andy sent in to Yeah, us. excellent. And in the meantime, while our haunted scarecrow has shuffled off into the shadows that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean men With a down, derry, 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 down